Welcome to episode 257. Breast cancer affects a lot of people, but with improving technology and increasing knowledge about alternative therapies and integrative healing strategies, survival rates are improving. And on today's show, we talk with a breast cancer survivor about some of the taboo topics around the cancer journey, like what not trusting your body feels like and how to grieve the passing of your former non-cancer self and how the consequences of pharmaceutical drugs cause a number of long-term health issues after the cancer is gone. We also discuss the idea of whose fault cancer is and at what point you take responsibility and also when to surrender. So if you or anyone you know has cancer, this conversation is going to be helpful because this woman is doing tremendous work and you need to hear about it. So let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? I'm glad you're here for your dose of the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. And well, today's conversation couldn't be more relevant to that title. But first, my focus is working on the problem before the big problem, which is why in 2023, it's my mission to coach 500 people to stop the binge eating and savage self-talk cycle so they can lose weight whilst feeling in control and without restriction along the way. Now, why is this conversation so relevant to the podcast title? Well, We're hanging out with Laura Carfang, the founder of Surviving Breast Cancer, an online education and community-driven platform that hosts weekly support groups, workshops, and webinars, and is intended as a home for those who have been touched by breast cancer diagnoses. Laura is an accomplished academic with a doctorate degree in higher education, and as a result of her own cancer journey, leveraged that knowledge and experience to present research at healthcare ethics conferences, and has also published in peer-reviewed medical journals such as current oncology, JCO oncology practice, and a bunch of others as well. And like all great podcast guests, Laura has her own show as well called Breast Cancer Conversations. And so we're going to have one of those conversations right now. Laura, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh, I'm like so excited, Maddie. This is like such a thrill. Yeah, it's so cool that we finally connected. I know we've been back and forth on the emails for a little while, so I'm glad we're here. And we were just discussing before we hit record how cool your surname is. Oh, Carfang. I know. I, that's like my one item of like, I take bets on of what you think my nationality is. So oh, that's a, oh, that's any a guess? Is it Scandinavian? Oh, oh, that's a good one. I haven't gotten that one before. Um, so it actually is from Italian. It used to be Carfagna. And when my family came over from Italy to the United States, when they arrived at Ellis Island, they were just taking documents and then changing people's surnames. And so they dropped the IA at the end. And I always say it used to rhyme with lasagna, Carfagna. And now we're just Carfang and no one has no idea like what nationality that is. So there you go. <laughs> well, uh, and if, if I remember correctly, I was doing a bit of research on you. You've, have you got a major or a degree or something in Italian literature or something like that? I do. I do. I was going back to my roots. I studied and lived in Italy for a number of years. Um, just wanted to learn as much as I can about the culture and and my past. Oh, that's incredible. I'm actually going to Italy in a couple of months and oh. I, I can't wait. <laughs> what parts of Italy? I'll just send you my like travel tips oh, and like best do, places for do. like gelato and pizza. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm gonna, only going to be there for two weeks um, and I'm just going to go wherever you tell me to go, basically. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. It's like my favorite place on earth. So yes, I have my laundry list of places. So Amazing. Yes. Um, so breast cancer conversations and this surviving breast cancer group that you've created. 
So obviously, this stems from your own experience and your own journey. Maybe a good place for us to start is the beginning of that journey for you and what sort of led to you creating this resource and this website and this community. Yeah, a great question. Um, and I have to say, when your email on our dialogue popped up and we started connecting with your podcast, um, How Not to Get Sick and Die, I was like, how apropos, because I was 34 years old. I was a strict vegan for a number of years. Prior to being a vegan, I was a vegetarian at the age of 16 because I feel like every 16-year-old like needs a cause. And so like being a vegetarian was like my cause, but that eventually morphed into becoming a vegan. And I hear the story a lot that People say that they're in the best shape of their life. They're feeling great. They're doing everything right, quote unquote. They're, how could this happen to me? How at the age of 34, with no family history of breast cancer, can someone who's living this healthy lifestyle, or at least that's what I thought, develop breast cancer? And so I share this also in the context that in the United States specifically, typical screenings for mammography do not happen until the age of 40. And so we can get into and unpack that a little bit about kind of knowing your body and different signs and symptoms um, that may be that may present for cancer and concern. But, you know, I just think it was, you know, you're young, you have the life ahead of you. I bought a house, the career's going great, like life is good. And then all of a sudden, wham, like you get cancer. How the hell is that possible? And so that was one, a shock that threw my world upside down. I joke all the time that my boyfriend now fiance um, was like, well, shit, we might as well go out and get a steak. Like, you know, like you were doing everything right. And so what, what happened? And so I think we can kind of demystify and unpack cancer in general, because I also want to let people know it's nothing that you did personally. It's nothing that you're at fault for or at blame with, you know, it's, it's not, there's so many things about cancer, especially breast cancer, where about 10% of breast cancers are genetically related, right? Like you might have a BRCA1, a BRCA2, check, PALB, ATM, et cetera, all of these genetic mutations. But then that leaves the other 90% to mm-hmm. the big question mark, right? So we can pontificate on whether or not that's, you know, environmental, diet, lifestyle, like all of these things. But what I also want to stress and I say this to myself, is like, the fact that I got cancer is not my fault. It's just a big question mark. We don't know why that happened to me. But how can I take this experience and turn that into purpose and a mission-driven opportunity to actually help and support others who are going through a cancer diagnosis? So I went out and decided, you know, it's kind of this, this funny thing. My parents were visiting me in Boston they were renting an Airbnb because in Boston, the housing market is like super tiny. There's like no place for them to like stay at my place. But so like they rented an Airbnb and we were sitting there after my surgery because they came out to support me during my treatments. Um, Like what next? Like, do you go back to work? Like, I don't really care about the paper jam and the printer. I don't really care about like the, the things that used to bother me and really just trying to reposition my life in making a difference and helping as many people as possible not through the science and the cure and like the medical team. They are amazing. And they're your primary caregivers when you're going through this trauma. But then so much of it too is emotional and psychological. And so what can we provide from a peer-to-peer perspective of someone who's been there, gone through that, and really kind of meet you where you are on that continuum of a diagnosis? And I use the term continuum because... Whether you are no evidence of disease, some people use the word cancer-free, some people 
are living with metastatic disease. And so, you know, that's also part of that continuum of no matter where you are in this, in this spectrum, there's support and opportunity for you to connect with somebody and know that you're not alone. Yeah. Wow. I, I totally can understand what you're saying when you say that after you go through such a deeply meaningful and confronting experience that, yeah, you no longer care about the printer at work anymore or all of these, you know, seemingly now trivial things that really didn't matter, which is, you know, I guess that's one of, if we look at spiritual guides and gurus and stuff, that's Mm, kind of one of the mm -hmm. messages is that, you know, you should live life like it's your last day all of the time. And we would probably all do our lives extremely differently, right? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember too, because part of this journey too, for those of us more on the quote unquote early stage where there, it is curable or treatable at least. And so, you know, while in the back of my head, I'm always thinking, gosh, it might come back. There might be a recurrence of breast cancer. Am I always going to wake up every morning? Like, does every ache and pain in my body trigger that idea of, oh gosh, it spread to my bones, or maybe I have a headache and maybe the cancer came back and now it's in my brain. Like every little thing is this constant trigger of trying to just get through life day to day, even though my hair grew back after chemotherapy, even though I look quote unquote normal. Um, and I, I know that you're also video recording this as well. So if I have a hot flash, that's just because I'm on continuous medications, right? Mm-hmm. So in order to keep the cancer at bay, I am on hormonal therapies for the next 10 years to ensure that my hormonally driven cancer does not return. Right. And so, you know, I think part of the messaging is, you know, a lot of us kind of suffer with invisible illnesses, right. That to the outside world, we look perfectly fine. We're healthy. We're working, we're moving around. And then the day to day of what we're living through is actually quite challenging and traumatic. And so to have a support community that I know that I can jump on a WhatsApp group, that I can jump on a Zoom call with people, that I can do an art therapy class and like scribble it out and really get that like angst out there is like so helpful. Yeah, it would be. And and I guess that's probably the exact community that you've been creating for other people, right? Is that this place where people can go and feel accepted and feel normal and feel like, you know, it's it's okay to have a bad day because, you, you know, I think completely. Yeah, it's a challenging conversation when somebody says, oh, you know, I've got to go do my chemo today or whatever. And people are like, sort of, uh, uh, don't know how to respond to this situation. They don't. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. It's kind of like the things not to say to a cancer patient, right? Or, um, and and I'm glad that you mentioned it's okay to have bad days. And I would love to hear your perspective too, because a lot of times, you know, we're surrounded by hope and getting flooded with like, stay positive. You're so strong. Like, you know, it's, it's the mindset, et cetera. And I'm like, it's also okay mm. to not be positive all the time mm. because what you're going through is incredibly hard and it's okay to acknowledge kind of that grief and that pain of losing a body part, not by choice, potentially losing infertility, depending on the treatments that you're on. Like there's this, I think a whole underlying psyche around a cancer diagnosis. And so and um, you know, just kind of unpacking like the the toxic positivity that we need to be aware of as well. Yeah, no, I well, I actually made a note, a little note here as you were talking before, um, where you referenced the fact that it's only ten percent of cancers that are you know genetically driven. And I know that when I was uh, working in the cancer hospital and and just beginning my journey, a lot of the data was sort of five to seven percent, um, and, mm-hmm. and so it's a little bit more. And 
And, you know, you mentioned there too that everything beyond that is just a giant question mark. And so, you know, based on my experience, I would say that that question mark is a culmination of the things you, you mentioned. Like it's, it's no, there's no, no one answer. We live in such a toxic world, um, you know, whether it be the food system, whether it be the, you know, the chemicals under the sink, whether it be the paint that we breathing in, in, you know, in our apartments. And there's just so many factors that contribute to it. And so in, in, in conjunction with that toxic positivity thing is that I also think that being uh, in denial of the things that you have control of is unhelpful as well. And so we, like, I think there's a time for positivity and hope. Um, and sometimes, you know, you need reckless hope to just be like to latch onto something but equally you know blaming yourself on the other end or beating yourself up um it's kind of what i said as part of my mission statement right is helping people with that inner dialogue which is not necessarily toxic positivity or just like yeah we'll be okay Uh, it'll all work out you know because that's not helpful as well because we all know the statistics around cancer it's also being like it wasn't my fault but it's my responsibility you know and there are yes. things that I can do. And every day is going to be different. Some days you won't give a shit that it's your responsibility. You won't care about anything, right? And that's okay because you're a dynamic human having a human experience. So I think like mm-hmm. being aware of where we can take responsibility, but also trying to mitigate that self-blame because a lot of that stress and self-savagery that happens in, in one's mind, even if someone that's just overweight, let alone a cancer diagnosis, can contribute to this, you know, the unhelpful, unhealthy state of the body. Yeah, no, completely. I wish I was as talented as you to take notes during this conversation. I'm just like listening. and <laughs> But so much that you talked upon, right? So yes, if it went from like five to 7% now to 10% for a genetic disposition, uh, predisposition, you know, that actually is, is good science, right? It means that we're discovering more genetic mutations that we can then proactively treat through prophylactic means, et cetera, right? So part of that question mark too is like, well, maybe they just haven't discovered yet what caused my breast cancer, right? And so I think maybe over time, you know, that that's the beauty of the science and the genome. Um, what else did you, like you were just saying so many good things that I wanted to like respond to. But I blame everything on chemo brain too. Oh, well, that's totally okay. <laughs> well, I guess we're, we're touching on that toxic positivity idea of like, you know, it's okay to have bad days and it's okay to, you know, just not care about anything today because you're a dynamic mm-hmm. human, right? Like you're yeah. someone that goes through the highs and lows just as anybody else does, except it's now in a cancer context, which is arguably a lot more intense and confronting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that self-talk as well, right? So one of the things that I practiced when I was going through my diagnosis and active treatment was visualization and meditation mm-hmm. and literally looking at like this this toxic chemotherapy that I'm putting into my body, which was a whole other discourse right there to like come to terms with just visualizing and knowing like it was going in and literally killing my cancer cells. Like that just felt so good to meditate upon. Mm -hmm. I've talked to some women where like they've named their cancer. They're like, Oh, this is Bob. Like we're, (laughs) we're fighting Bob. Right. Like it was like a persona. And so I think there's, yes, exactly. So there's like so many ways to, I think, use kind of the spiritual and the mental, the wellness side. And to your point to want to meet our oncologist halfway, they're giving us all of these drugs and they're doing their job excellently. What can we do 
when we're not in the chemotherapy chair or on the radiation table in our day-to-day life that will help the treatment be as effective as possible, whether that's you know walking, eating well, working on your diet, all of these things. So I think there's a good merge and blend of, of meeting, like, I guess, showing up to the plate. Yeah. Well, and further to that kind of conversation that you're sort of alluding to there, were you ever offered any alternative um, treatment protocols or non-conventional therapies outside of that sort of Western medical chemo radiation setting? That's a great question. So I remember the weekend before my first chemo infusion, and of course, I'm sure you hear this all the time too, like this all happens so quickly, you barely have time to digest your diagnosis, let alone your treatment plan. And then learning a whole new vocabulary around all of these new words around cancer that were not part of my yeah. vocabulary prior to my diagnosis. And I Googled a whole bunch of different holistic options. There's a surprising amount of like Facebook groups or other holistic groups and alternative medicine opportunities. And after kind of oscillating between the two, I think there's a yes and, not an either or approach mm-hmm. to to cancer. And everyone's choice, I, I strongly believe, like if you could wake up in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror, knowing that you're making the best decision and the best choice for you, then that is the best choice. And when you have that peace, you're making the best choice, no matter what anyone says, because everyone is going to have an opinion and trust me, they do. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's you and you have to be comfortable with those choices. And so I again, was very fortunate to have such a great caregiver um, who supported me in all of those choices, whether it was going through this conventional medicine, but some of the more holistic approaches that we took were, you know, we went out and we bought, you know, a juicer and a blender and also a juicer that was like centrifugal force versus press because Mm -hmm. like, I have like all the appliances now in my kitchen because I'm like, I just kept reading new things and I just wanted to try everything. There was a while, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Dr. Gerson. I think he's since yeah. passed, but there's like the Gerson diet. And we were trying that for a little while. We were doing coffee edemas for a while. Like we were doing all of these things to try and like help the body mm-hmm. along the way. In addition to the the Western medicine. Yeah. Yeah. I agree actually. So I, I obviously we talked about before, but I left the cancer hospital just sort of uh, a little bit in disgust after all of the years working there that nobody ever talked about diet. Nobody ever cared for a solution to the permanent problem of cure, like curing this disease. It was all just, um, how can we keep people on drugs, uh, and manage their disease and until they die of something, whether it be the cancer or not. And so I went down, I went deep down a rabbit hole of alternative, uh, cancer treatments. And so I'm, I'm, I definitely lean more in the direction of that natural holistic health. And, and I know many cancer patients now that have done it that way completely. But I think the thing that you mentioned is, is the most important variable. And it's the, the conviction in your own decisions. Because even if all the people around you are like me, and we're all basically hippies, is that we're just like <laughs> encouraging you to, to do it, you know, do the juices and do the fasts and do all of the turmeric and the ginger and whatever. If you don't believe it, and this is arguably the immeasurable part that science can't really talk to. But if, if your belief system is not in alignment with that, then it's not going to be overly helpful. And, and I guess the way to describe this is all of the evidence we have for placebos that, you know, in medical mm. trials and nocebos being the opposite. And so the conviction in your decision to like 
energetically or from a soul level commit to this path of the journey, I think is so important. And if you feel most comfortable in a completely Western medical setting or a completely, you know, tree hugging setting where you're hanging out with me, (laughs) then that's the right (laughs) choice for you. Exactly. That's amazing. So, I mean, if you don't mind me turning the table just quickly too, I'm super intrigued. What type of holistic medicine or approach would would you recommend or that you work with in terms of someone, not just breast cancer, but I would say any sort of element um, to kind of get their health back in alignment with their body? Because now that I had cancer and I feel like my body like turned on me, right? Yeah. So there's also this like level of mistrust mm-hmm. in and of myself that I'm dealing with because I'm like, I thought we were doing all the right things and now we're not. Now I have to regroup and figure out what works for me. And, you know, in my case, I don't know if I was eating too much soy or if I was eating too many carbs because I was a vegan and like not eating fish or eggs or yogurt or any of those things. And then now trying to realize that my my cancer was hormonally driven, right? And I'm looking at all the phytoestrogens and everything yeah. else in my food. It is really hard to put together your diet. And so I don't know, I, I, with, with your expertise, I'm just, and I'm not asking for personal medical advice, but just in general, like high level, you know, kind of natural approach to illness. What what do you recommend? So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. So, I mean, the golden rule with food for anybody trying to achieve anything is jerf. Just eat real food. Um, so, what... Whatever the dietary template is, step one is just move to just eating real food, moving away from anything that's in a bag, a box, or a can, because we're going to get unnatural levels of different nutrition. There's a lot of sodium in different things to preserve them. There's an extreme amount of sugar in things. And sort of over the last half a century to a century, we've slowly upped the sugar level in everything to the point where it's normal to have this volume of sugar, but it's actually extremely toxic. And and I would even say um, that for many people, and this is actually taught in medical school, it's just not often used in a cancer setting. But the keto diet is actually a really useful tool because one of the hallmarks of cancer is um, the Warburg effect. And the Warburg effect is that cancer cells are sugar hungry, right? So when you have a PET scan, they're radioactively labeled glucose molecules, so sugar molecules. And the reason they use sugar to detect cancer is because your cancer cells suck those up at somewhere between 
two to 50 times the amount that a normal cell would. So you can then take a, take a, take a PET scan and you get a photo and wherever the, obviously the black dots are is where the radioactively labeled sugar has been taken up the quickest. And so that's why it's really effective. And that was one of the first alarm bells for me to be like, hang on, if, if we know that cancer cells are super hungry for glucose, why at the cancer cafe and the cancer food list that you order from your bed, is it like grains and carbohydrates and packaged stuff? Um, and that was the, one of the first things that set yeah. me on that pathway. And so, so I think, yeah, removing the all sugars in some instances, like, and, and keep in mind, a lot of the time I'm talking to, about, to people about changing their diet slowly over time so they can have good you know, sustainability and longevity. But in a therapeutic context like this, I would be like, overnight, we need to like clear the cupboard out, clear the fridge out. You know, this is a therapeutic response to, to a, a serious disease situation. So yeah, knowing that cancer cells are so sugar hungry, we want to, it's kind of like starving the, the, them in a sense mm -hmm. from their primary nutrition source. It's not that they won't get it from elsewhere, but but yeah, so I think nutritionally, that's where I would start. But th there's other factors too. Like you might need to quit a job that you've hated for 30 years. You might be married to somebody that you don't like at all, you know, that's really unsupportive and destructive. And, and that might be considered as woo-woo, but if we make it less woo-woo, all that does is increases your adrenaline and your cortisol. So your, your stress hormones, your self-protection hormones. Um, you might have grown up in a home when you were younger where that was normal as well. Maybe there was violent parents. Maybe there was abuse. And so you've lived your whole life in this stress-driven survival state. So there's also that side of the conversation to consider as well. And I honestly believe for everybody, it's a different piece of, of each pie, but it's all the pieces of the pie, whether that piece be 1%, mm -hmm. 50%, 90%, whatever it is, they all need to be considered. So in a nutshell, that's kind of my answer. <laughs> no, I love that. That's super helpful. And yeah, I, I mean, nutrition is such a critical part. And when we think about survivorship, right? So you go through this trauma of just trying to live day to day, right? Like not die. And then right now, as we were talking to, like you feel like, okay, well, I'm back to work. I'm reintegrating back with... um society, my job, things are normal. My hair grew back. I don't look like a cancer patient anymore, mm -hmm. but you have this continuum of survivorship. And what we don't talk about enough is all of the long-term consequences of the toxic therapeutics that we were on. And so if you had radiation to the left side of your breast, you might actually have increased risk for heart disease. If you've had very, um, you know, toxic chemotherapy drugs, that's going to lead to liver disease or other things down the line. And so I kind of frame this as like whack-a-mole because like, yes, you <laughs> survived cancer, but like you're still trying, not trying to die. Like yeah. you don't want to deal with all of these other things. And I think your point is incredibly well taken because as that, the longer you live, that's great. But then that also gives your body, unfortunately, more opportunity to develop these other ailments. And yep. not wanting to necessarily necessarily be put on a statin or high cholesterol or any of these things, especially for women in in the space who are being thrown into medical menopause because of their diagnosis. Like estrogen is a critical hormone that has an important role in your body. Yeah. So to deplete your body of this is almost like, okay, great. Well, what are the trade-offs? And so, you know, how we can find natural and holistic ways and utilizing nutrition to to really like tell my body, like, yes, we can mend this relationship and we can do this together. And that might look different than how I, it looked, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago. Sure. Like, give me a, 
give me a steak, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that's incredible that you, that you acknowledge that because I don't think that conversation's had enough. And this is another reason why I think nutritionists and nutritional therapists and whether it be Ayurvedic practitioners or Indian medicine or traditional Chinese, it should be in conjunction with Western medicine because the way that we treat it is like, oh, you're in remission. We all go to the front door of the hospital and we wave you off to back to the life yeah. that caused cancer. And it's like, hang on, this person needs to totally rebuild their life so that it doesn't repeat, you know, and we need to detox the body. And like a big part of any cancer patients I've ever worked with, spirulina and chlorella. Chlorella particularly is really good at detoxing the body. Fasting is really good at um, increasing the body's resilience to the chemotherapy as well. Um, and so I, th- I really think these these worlds should be brought together because there's so much more that can be achieved. And probably as you're suggesting, a better quality of life if we actually acknowledge that these things that happen afterwards. Yes. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I wanted to talk about too, I guess, and you've, you've already touched on it there is, you know, being when you talked about that sort of mistrust that happens with your body, uh, like, and, and how did that relationship with your body change from what was it like before? I'm guessing, possibly you didn't even think about it because your body was just being your body. And then now you go through this treatment and this disease and this experience, like how is it rebuilding that trust? That's a great question. That's like a really deep question. I wasn't prepared for. Um, (laughs) That's a great question. No, no, no. I love that. I love that. I love that you're digging deeper into, um, you know, just the cancer journey and the experience. You know, there was a while where, and I talk a lot, talk a lot about this in my breast cancer communities in support groups a couple of different ways to answer that question. I wish I had a sticker on my forehead that says, this is not really me. I feel like when I meet people now who don't know that I've gone through a cancer diagnosis, they're passing judgment immediately based on, you know, how I look, how I act, all if I have a hot flash, like all of these things that happen because of my diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I gained 50 pounds because of chemotherapy. I was given steroids to help with the side effects and the nausea. And that immediately makes you you know, gain weight. And so everyone has this like, you know, chubby glow is like what I call it. I felt like I was like an angel or like a cherubim, right? Like this bald alien walking around. Um, you know, but I'm like, that's not how, that's not what I look like. And then you're put on aromatase inhibitors or tamoxifen and your joints hurt. So like if I was an amazing practicing yogi, I now can't even do chaturanga because my wrist hurts so badly. I can't do the things that I used to do, but nobody knows that. That's again, invisible. No one sees this. And so not only am I reconciling my body, I'm also reconciling the past self that I have to grieve and say goodbye to, and then embrace and love the person that I'm becoming and really taking this pain and turning it into purpose through the work that I'm doing through my nonprofit of survivingbreastcancer.org. And so, you know, every day is like a little step closer to like bringing peace to that that piece, that the disconnect, that dissonance. Yeah. Well, that sounds really reminiscent of conversations that I've had with um, different mums and not in a disease context, but just having to accept years after having kids that like that former person before kids is not coming back. (laughs) I know. It's so sad. I guess we're just growing up and getting older. And now like, how do we deal with that? (laughs) Yeah, totally. I think, and I think as well, we're in, you know, this social media era where we're inundated with images and stories at a blistering rate, probably far more than we should, that probably contribute to this idea that we're not who we're meant to be or a former version of Mm. us is, you know, 
was once there. Possibly the social media is exacerbating that belief because maybe, you know, it's, it's, if we look at it, uh, if we use the word soul, which is a bit fluffy, but it's like, it's the one soul that we carry through our mm-hmm. entire life. Right. And it just goes on different experiences in its physical vessel. Yeah. Right. Right. And depending on what we want to tell and the story we want to share on social media. Right. Yeah. So, um, interestingly there, I remember my mom and I having this heart to heart after my diagnosis, cause I was going to publicly share my diagnosis on social media. Yeah. And she was like, don't do that. And so I think it like brings back this idea of like, you know, bringing shame to the family, which I don't think we were doing, but like, you know, there, there's cultures where you're like, we don't talk about sickness and illness. We don't talk about cancer. We just say you're not doing well, right? We don't go into the depth of like family history. Um, you know, there's kind of like this, this private side of our healthcare system. And the moment that you go public to say, I have breast cancer and I'm letting the world know, I had no idea if I was going to lose my job the next day because that's a health insurance risk here in the United States. I'm going to be a more expensive employee because I have cancer now, right? Yeah, right. And so there's a lot of ethical choices I think you're making too when you go public with with anything like that. Um, but I did, obviously. Started my organization. I mean, you Google Laura Carfing, you're going to find breast cancer. Um, and I'm proud of that. And I, I think it's something that I am incredibly proud of because there's nothing to be ashamed of with an illness, with a disease, with a cancer. And so my mission is to educate people and to have these amazing conversations with people like you to learn about the nutrition and the lifestyle and whether it's, you know, pregnant moms or someone who's leaving an abusive relationship, like we've gone through something traumatic and that together is healing in of itself when we can connect with others who might not have the exact same experience, but have been through something just as traumatic and we can come out stronger together. Yeah, I think that's such an important share about the shame aspect. And I think the media probably more than anything has a lot to answer for because there's there's conversations in sort of the alternative wellness medical community about the fact that maybe you know telling people how long they've got to live should be illegal because you you literally hand someone in that moment a set of belief systems and conditions for what they should expect their life to be like and that can really set people up to give up on the spot and and I think our modern culture has this idea as soon as somebody says the word cancer everybody just pulls out the white flag of surrender and just says goodbye mm-hmm. you know and it's like we, it's not the case. Tons of people survive cancer, right? And, yes. and there's lots of ways to look after it. And so I think as a society and, you know, the media probably needs to back this idea, we, we should just start encouraging people to be like, oh, that's really, that, that sucks. How can I help? What do you need? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and taking a, a more casual approach to it rather than goodbye, you're on death's door, see you later. You know, like that's devastating. Exactly. And, and of course you would be hesitant to share because you know, you're going to, res- everyone's just going to start looking at you as if you're a ghost already. And that's like, that's awful. So we, I think we really need to change that social narrative around what a cancer diagnosis means so we can get the support of everyone around us. Exactly. Exactly. And I think when I pressed the like post button and the people that rallied around me on social media, when I shared my disease, was like people were coming out of the woodwork, right? Mm-hmm. People I was not expecting to show up and and care and support was unbelievable. I I know personally I needed that. And so that was like, again, the right decision for me. Yeah, that's incredible. And I think that happens in all sorts of crises. It's like the, some people we expect to be there can't handle it and kind of disappear. And 
uh, and other people just out of nowhere and you're like, whoa, oh, this person's uh, here. Thank you. Nice to see yeah, you. <laughs> exactly. 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 So humbling. Totally. Well, let me know when you get on like major media outlets because I will be there right be- right there beside you and then we can like change change the whole narrative around this. Yes. Let's go together. Let's go together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So tell me more about the um, the community that you've created. Like what, what's involved? Like how do people take part? Like all of that kind of stuff. Like, cause I'm sure there's loads yeah. of people listening, knowing that we're almost 50% of people have a cancer diagnosis these days. And so that oh. are wondering how they can, how do I get involved in Laura's world? Oh my gosh. Well, I'd love to meet everybody. Um, and so unfortunately, and I always say like, I'm so glad you reached out. It's so nice to meet you despite the circumstances in which we are meeting. Right. Mm-hmm. Because like, I've met some of the, met best, most amazing women and men in the cancer community, um, who I would have not otherwise interfaced with given my career background or social networks. Mm -hmm. And so it's such a rewarding opportunity to meet with anyone, um, who's just looking for help or support. So survivingbreastcancer.org is our website and we are an online virtual patient care platform. We provide, you know, education, uh, community support resources, programming, 100% 100% free to anyone who engages with us. And, um, you know, as a nonprofit, I, I stress about the funding. I, I deal with that behind, behind the scenes, but people can join. We have an app that people can download on Android or on their iPhones, survivingbreastcancer.org. And we have private groups that are specific to whether you're diagnosed with early stage disease, metastatic disease, inflammatory breast cancer. There's so many subtypes we didn't even like scratch the surface on, but our goal really is to be this umbrella and share something for everybody. Mm -hmm. Some of the programs that we offer include, you know, expressive writing classes. We do weekly support groups on Thursday nights. We call ourselves the Thursday night thrivers. We meet up every Thursday. It's like super fun. It's a no agenda meeting. So like, yes, we talk about cancer, but we also talk about like everything else that's going on in our lives. So, so that's really great. We have our breast cancer book club, which is a book club where we read books that have nothing to do with cancer. So sometimes you're actually tired of talking about your story and your disease and you just want to be yourself. And so that's what our breast cancer book club is about. And we just started launching all of our programs and podcasts entirely in Spanish. And so that's another way that people can engage with us too. So we're going to be expanding, I think, into more languages as we grow. But the goal, again, is, you know, we don't want you to feel alone through this diagnosis. And we want to meet you where you are. And, of course, in the language that you are most comfortable with, because breast cancer in itself is overwhelming. Yep, it doesn't discriminate ethnicities, race, age, none of that stuff. Or mm-hmm. gender, we should highlight. Mm-hmm. Seriously, yes. About 1% of men are diagnosed with breast cancer as well. So it is true that like, while you might not have traditional breasts, you do have breast tissue. Mm. And so men are eligible, unfortunately, to get this disease as well. And so it's always important to just know your body at the end of the day, whether you're in the shower, like soaping up with your hands, not your loofah, but like with your hands, just knowing what feels right to you and then being aware of any signs or symptoms of change. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question for for men, but particularly for women is like, what is your advice for self-care or self-maintenance or checking in um, so that because obviously we're yeah. having showers every day, we're with our own bodies every day. So, you know, there's a lot that can be done to sort of at least for externally to, to check in with yourself. Absolutely. You know, and that's such a funny question because it's a little controversial. So here's like the controversial piece and feel free to push back. Um, you know, what's interesting is for a long time, everyone was promoting what's called self-breast exams. 
right? And so there would be all of these graphics or infographics that you can find online on how to do a self-breast exam, what to feel for, how to do it, lying down, doing it during your menstrual cycle or afterwards, or these different times of the month so that you really got to know your breast. I think that's important. I think it's important to know your breast, right? And so the language has changed from self-breast exams to being more breast aware or self-breast aware of those changes. And what was happening and what we're trying to mitigate is, again, going back to this shame idea, well, you know, you don't want someone to say, oh, well, you got breast cancer because you didn't do your self-breast exam. You could have caught this. Like, we don't want to go down that path. So that is not the point, right? The point is just to be breast aware, self-aware around changes, um, whether you feel a lump. And I always use the analogy of like what the tip of your nose feels like. Like this could kind of be like the car- the cartilage that you have in your nose or like on the bottom of your elbow, like kind of what like a little hard lump could feel like. And um, there could also be changes in terms of texture. So there could be dimpling. There could be what kind of looks like an orange peel on your skin. Like maybe your skin doesn't look like this every day. Like again, just being self-aware about, around what your body looks like. So you can be aware also when there's changes. Mm-hmm. And then I preface all of this with, Sometimes there are no signs. And so breast cancer is one of those sneaky diseases. It's, I sometimes joke and wish I didn't have such a smart cancer. Like it hides and it can show up in other ways as well. So I think just whatever your routine checkups are, your screening systems are, I think it's important to understand your family history. As I was kind of alluding to earlier, you know, when everyone was like, oh, someone's just not feeling well. Well, the moment I told my mom that I had breast cancer, the the box of Pandora's box like opened up with like everyone on the family like had cancer here, cancer here, cancer there. And I'm like, oh gosh, had I known this, I would have been able to take this information to my doctor and maybe have been eligible for screening sooner. However, so the importance of family history. So these are just some of like the small tips that people can feel in control of mm-hmm. and tangibly take to make a difference. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those. I think it's yeah important. And I mean, not just for breast tissue. I think one thing that is not necessarily encouraged is just our own body literacy and knowing what it feels like. Like how often do people feel their own shoulders and their biceps and their, you know, their stomachs and their legs and, and, you know, like being aware of your own physicality, I think is just a good practice anyway. And then, I mean, I mean, we can also talk about being aware of your own thoughts and emotions and stuff as well, which I think play a major part in, in all health and wellness stories. But but yeah, so I, you know, I, I think that's a good thing to encourage is people yeah. being body literacy. I'm going to use that one. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Being body literate. <laughs> like, yeah. Cause we, we, we live such busy lives, you know, we're so distracted by social media and TV and the kids and the life that we're trying to keep up with. That's just moving at such a blistering pace that it's like, we kind of forget ourselves amongst all of it. Exactly. Yeah. So Taking that time to be present with yourself yeah. and your thoughts and everything going on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Laura, you are incredible. So I thank you so much for coming on to the show and chatting about oh, this. Such a pleasure. Yeah. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. You're so welcome. And um, so you, you already talked a little bit about it, but just so we, so everybody knows again, where can everybody find that stuff online? Yes. Survivingbreastcancer.org is our website and you can find all of our information, all of our programs, our podcast, Breast Cancer Conversations there. Um, all of our social media. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter that we produce. Um, all, all of the good things, survivingbreastcancer.org. 
Amazing. And for everybody listening, if you've enjoyed this episode or you think that somebody you know can get some good benefit out of it and wants to find Laura's work, please share it with them, share it uh, out with the world because we the more people that can get some of Laura's stuff, the better because it's a beautiful uh, concept and community that's uh, helping a lot of people. So uh, thank you, Laura, for being here. One more thing, and that is, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? Oh, gosh. I know. It's a big There's one. so many. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was touching upon the health history of like your family, but one that we didn't talk about that I think people should be aware of is knowing your breast density. And so, again, when we think about our screenings and modalities, that's wonderful that you can get screened and that you have your annual mammograms or whatever it is that your screening modality is in your country. Um, but at the same time, too, the modality and the imaging and the technology is only as good as what they're taking the picture of. And so for women who have very dense breast tissue, and Maddie, you might already know this as well with like your science background, right? Like you look at a mammogram and you're looking at, you know, an x-ray that shows up like black and white. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, your cancer is also white. And so if your tissue is really dense, it's almost like trying to find a snowflake in a, in a pile of snow, right? White on white, you're not going to see it. And so again, I just want people to feel strong and empowered to ask questions, ask for other types of screening modalities. And just knowing again, that, you know, you don't have to be satisfied with the status quo. I don't know if that was like going too deep too soon, but like, I just feel like that's that's amazing. There's no such thing as too deep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know dense breast tissue was a thing. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, if I don't know about that, like how many other people don't know that that's even something to be aware of and to know what your breast density is. Yeah. Wonderful. Thanks so much for hanging out with me, Laura. I've really appreciated this conversation. Me too. I love it. Thank you so much from across the world. Yeah. So it's wonderful. Absolutely. Well, we'll catch up with you really soon. Wonderful. Thank you. Have a great night. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.